This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. You all know I spent a lot of my formative years in the 1980s. And what an amazing time that was. Uh, Not just because of whatever was happening in the world, but as a child and a teenager at that time, I remember like what toys were hot. So I remember like, I know my mom didn't actually beat anybody up, but I remember her going to get in line for Cabbage Patch Kids. Uh, Not for me, but for my sister. Um, So I wanna clarify that. Um, So my sister was getting Cabbage Patch Kids. I was in the Masters of the Universe um, He-Man world, so I wanted a new action figure and I would you know, scour through that JCPenney catalog. Um, and I also remember the beginning of video games. So I had an Atari 2600 in 1981. I had uh, the classic NES when it came out and played and defeated Mario and Legend of Zelda and all the great games that came out. And another hot thing in the 80s was the game Trivial Pursuit. Trivial Pursuit, I mean, this game, uh, I don't know if you know the backstory, it was initially founded by some friends in Canada. Uh, We know Canadians have hockey and uh, just coffee and probably not much else, but anyway, uh, they they lost some Scrabble pieces in the the game, they were were playing Scrabble, they lost some Scrabble pieces and they were bored and in their frustration, they came up with a trivia game. And by 1986, the game had sold 20 million units with $600 million in sales, which is probably in today's world like $3 billion. Um, So $600 million in sales. Its reception is the stuff of legend. So the Toy Insider mentioned that it can be enjoyed by boomers, millennials, and everyone in between. So I guess that means me. Um, I'm Gen X, so yeah. Boomers, millennials, and everyone in between. Uh, Board Games Land, another site, calls it the timeless classic and the godfather of trivia games. That's what Trivial Pursuit is. Trivial Pursuit is what it is because the questions are the game. The questions keep the players engaged. And so we come today to the Gospel of Luke and we've been engaged by the writer, Luke, who is a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to, um, he's writing concerning the things that we've heard and concerning the things that we've been taught about Jesus. And he's writing to move us. Luke has a specific game that we would, we would have confidence concerning these things that we know about Jesus and we've heard. And he wants us to go all in. He's writing to move us. He's writing to compel us. He's urging us to put our trust in Jesus. And with that, inevitably, is gonna come some questions. Now, last time when we were looking at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, we saw how unique Jesus was. And Jesus was unique in powerful words that he spoke in the humble way he lived in contrast to the crowd and what they wanted from him, the way he reoriented followers and even how he cared for people, inclusively drawing them back into community. So he wasn't just like healing people and dropping the mic and saying, yeah, look at me. He was healing people and then saying things like, go show yourself to the priest. Like he wanted this person restored to life and community. And so today we get a litany of interrogations as religious leaders hit up Jesus with all kinds of questions. And uh, this is gonna help us have confidence about who Jesus is and I hope it draws you closer to him rather than repels you from him. I think that's Luke's aim. He's wanting to draw us closer. That we're kind of leaning in with every question. We're leaning into more of who Jesus is and what what he's about. The end game of these opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke 
continue to be about moving us. So please don't walk away from today thinking that I'm just here to give you some good information about Jesus. You could go like read Luke for yourself and get good information about Jesus. Um, yeah, of course what we believe about Jesus is decidedly good information. We call it good news. But what we read here is not like opening the newspaper and concluding, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, Luke's on a campaign to affect us. He wants to move us. These questions about Jesus are meant to provoke us to action, provoke you to action. So some of us have some of these same big questions that the religious people have. And I want you to see how Jesus engages them. Jesus even anticipates the questions before they ask it. And he does all this to move us along, to move us back into him. Um, I think there's some of us in this room, we've, we've morphed into living in certain ways that aren't informed by Jesus very much at all. And so I think Luke's writing to move us. Um, we, I think we, we're tempted to embrace some cultural kind of living that easily gets called Christian because we live in the Midwest but it's a long way from what Jesus actually said and did. Um, if God's word is given to pierce the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, then what is God up to today? What, what's the thoughts and intentions of our hearts that he wants to engage today? Uh, we would do well to consider how far we actually live from how Jesus actually lived than how Jesus is, especially if we claim to follow him. So I, I this, this passage is gonna wow you and mystify you and it should leave us all just like, yikes. <laughs> I need more of Jesus. I need more of him. And another way this passage I think is um, gonna play out today is some of us are more passionate about rule keeping than we are about Jesus himself. And Jesus has very particular words for us. So, these questions are undoubtedly gonna leave us where we must do something. We have to do something with Jesus. Now you can just say, well, that's just Jesus' opinion, as if you're on the same level of him. Um, so we just gotta be careful. Um, and I think it's gonna mystify us all. So I wanna get right into the text. I invite you to join me as we explore more narratives in Luke's gospel. We're gonna see four questions, so that's the summary. There's really five questions we're gonna look at, but four questions that help us have certainty about Jesus. <clears throat> and I hope these help you. I hope they encourage you to lean into him. And so let's read the first part of our passage together. We're gonna to read Luke 5, 17 to 26. When we get to the end of verse 26, I'll say, this is God's word. And if you feel led, you can say, thanks be to God. Uh, that's kind of a great response. And then we'll keep trucking through this passage. So uh, Luke 5, 17 to 26, let's read this together. On one of these days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So we're going to keep going down to verse 11 of chapter 6, but this is the first narrative and four questions that help us have certainty about Jesus. And this first question came in this part, and it's the question, who can forgive sins? I'm calling it the forgiveness question. Who can forgive sins? The forgiveness question. Now, in the previous verses, we saw Jesus give inclusive care to the leper. So again, what I'm calling inclusive care is that, remember, he touched a leper. Jesus did that. He touched a leper and healed him and then sent him back to the priest for examination. Um, I think it's probably so that the priests have to do something with how this man got healed. They have to do something with Jesus. So he gave inclusive care. And Luke ended the section with a report that great crowds were gathered to hear Jesus and be healed, but Jesus would retreat and pray. And then our passage today comes. Jesus is teaching and there's Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there and Jesus was healing. And then we get the word behold. So every time I see the word behold in scripture, this is just a a nerdy thing. Um, Every time I see the word behold in scripture, I write look in all caps out to the side because I think behold is like one of these junk drawer church terms that, oh, behold. Uh, But if I see, look, you know, then it's like, hey, there's something going on here that I need to pay attention to. Men were trying to bring Jesus a paralyzed man. Look at this. And because of the the crowd, they tore the roof apart. Um, Even more shocking than the roof getting raised, um, raised in the R-E-Z-E-D sense, the man and the man getting dropped through comes Jesus because the next verse says when they dropped this man in, Jesus saw what? What does the text say? What does the text say that Jesus saw? He saw their faith. What in the world? I thought faith was like a private thing. But Jesus can see that? This is bewildering. He was seeing faith. Seeing faith, Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. What in the world is Jesus talking about? What is he doing? So we've already noticed in this book that Jesus is interested in more than just simply healing physical needs. Um, And he's moving now to address the spiritual needs alongside the healing. And he's pointing to something more about who he is. And so the Pharisees and scribes began to question. Now in the text, it's worded in a really particular way, evidently they're questioning, but they're not saying anything out loud because the context tells us, and they're saying things like, they're questioning by saying things like, who is this who speaks blasphemy? So you can forgive sins, but God alone. And Jesus connects the dots for them, but they can't solve the simple puzzle. (laughs) Like, like they're asking the question, who can forgive sins? This man blasphemes. And Jesus is like connecting all the dots for them. They, they know exactly, Jesus is making it clear exactly who can forgive sins, exactly who can heal. And they're looking at that going, well, that can't be. That, that's not right. So Jesus 
anticipates their question, he asks or answers them, why do you question in your hearts? So he gives them a conundrum, which is easier to forgive sins or to heal and say, rise up and walk. So it's simple, like if, you're, if the question is who can forgive sins, then let's just put it this way. Like, what do you think's easier? Like to tell somebody, hey, your sins are forgiven or to say to someone who's actually lame, why don't you rise and walk? It's a simple conundrum. Like, what do you think is the easier one? So just the, there's a couple connections here. One is Jesus knows your thoughts. <laughs> like, so, I mean, I've said for so long, I know we wanna look like awesome church people every Sunday morning, but Jesus knows your thoughts. Like, you're not fooling him. And some of you grumble in your hearts. And... Um, you might even say to me, oh, I'm not a grumbler, I'm not a complainer. But Jesus knows your heart. Like he, he, there's no charade with him. You can play games with Pastor Phil all you want. Like, I like baseball, whatever, you know. Like you can play games here all you want, but you can't play games with God. You can't play games with Jesus. He knows your heart. He understands your questions. And I, so I think he understands in one way that like should like drive any sense of awesomeness that you have in your heart about yourself out of the building. But he also, he knows your heart in a sense that he wants to hear your questions. He wants you to be honest with him. He's not looking for you to be honest with him so that he can go, see, told you, boom. You know, that's not how Jesus is operating. He's wanting you to just be transparent with him. So he, he understands your questions and he's ready to respond. And then I think secondly, Another connection is how do you respond to the puzzle? I mean, which do you think is easier, to forgive someone their sins or to tell them be healed and to actually do that healing? So Jesus is giving us a flat out display in this narrative that the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. And the way he proves that he has the skills to forgive sins is by telling the man, so rise, pick up your mat and walk and go home and immediately the healing was accomplished. And the healed one went on his way. And did the healed one went on his way going, who is this who blasphemes? Who is this who thinks he can forgive sins? No, the healed one goes on his way glorifying God. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, hold on, no glorifying God here, I'm not God. No, Jesus sees that as perfectly appropriate, glorifying God. And um, he's giving this former paralytic, God alone has done this. He's glorifying God for all that's happened. And all the people are glorifying God. They're filled with awe. They're saying that they had seen extraordinary things. So the first question is really this forgiveness question. And it gives us clarity about who Jesus is, which is easier. They're both impossible for anyone in this world apart from Jesus. Like I can't forgive sins that they have against God. Um, I can't heal someone. I might be able to use modern medicine to do something to treat them. I might be able to, if someone's wronged me, forgive them. But I can't fix the vertical. I can't fix the problem they have with God. Only God can do that. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to forgive sins. That's the answer to the forgiveness question. God is found in the person and work of Jesus. Who can forgive him? Who can forgive sins? Only him. So that's the first question. And we gotta keep rolling. So look with me down at verse 27 through 32. Let me read that. 
After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him, with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumble at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the second question, um, as we get more clarity about Jesus, why does he eat with sinners? I'm calling this the association question. The association question. The association question. And it's interesting. Um, I think we're so familiar with Levi, the tax collector, being a follower of Jesus that we don't understand um, the shock and awe that any first century reader would have had in, in reading verses 27 and 28. Uh, they come up close and personal for most everybody who would have read this. And so to maybe put ourselves in their mindset, think of the most detestable person you could envision, a traitor to our country, um, who's extorted money from whoever he wished, sitting there minding his own business. That's the kind of person that Levi would have been. And Jesus goes out after prayer, after touching and healing a leper, after forgiving and healing a paralytic. He sees this person, which, I mean, that's already well down the road from some of us. We don't even see those people because we're trying to avoid them. Jesus sees the person and he goes after him and says, follow me. And his call changes things so immediately that Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. That's all we're told. So, I mean, if you watch The Chosen, you know that there's all kinds of backfill story into this. Maybe that happened that way, I don't know. We don't know that reading the Gospel of Luke. We just know that Jesus walks up to one of the most detestable people in society and says, I see you, come follow me. And he does. So that's one shock. But then it gets even more scandalous. As scandalous as that is, it doesn't stop. Our question really emerges in verses 29 to 32. Levi throws a party and even more undesirable people show up. And Jesus is reclining at table with them and he is hanging out with them. Who does this guy think he is? Doesn't he know? He's eating with them. He's not distancing himself from needy people, but he's willingly associating with them in public. And the religious crowd has had enough. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, I'm trying to think of crazy stuff that I've been told in my life. Why are you hanging out with Democrats? Um, I've, that's been alleged by people towards me. Why do you, um, I know Luke's been asked the question, why do you live in that part of town? Don't you know what's down there? Um, I mean, just think about that. So I think we kind of sit on our moral high horses and read this passage and we're like, I would never do that. Yeah, you've all done it, right? So let's just stop, you know. Um, 
It's the association question. Jesus is not distancing himself from them. The religious crowd doesn't like it. It's an association question. Jesus hangs out with people and that makes him questionable. Doesn't he know what these people are like? Doesn't he know what they do? Doesn't he know what they stand for? And Jesus' answer is so instructive to us, right? If you're well, you don't need a doctor. Only sick people need doctors. I didn't come for those who have their act together. I came for those who don't, that they might turn from their ways and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. So unfortunately, this category is alive and well in the culturally Christian confines of Midwest Kansas. Some of us want to have a reputation as one who doesn't associate with undesirables. And what's informing this? Well, more than likely, we're too concerned about what other religious people might think of us. You know, what if Grace Bible Church hears that we love this kind of people? Or what if this church hears that we do this? Or what if this happens? If I, what if I'm seen here and somebody from church sees me at this place with these people? What are they gonna think? And is it not just the same thing? Is it not just this religious garbage of the association question? It's, it's crazy. More than likely, it's usually, what are religious people gonna think about this? But if we step into loving people, if we step into associating with them and even engaging them for good, you know what we're gonna find when we do that? Jesus is already there. <laughs> we're gonna find like he's there. Like, oh, you've been here all along? Yeah, I have, this is what I do. I came for people like this. I didn't come for church people who have their act together and are looking down their noses at other people who like other people. I came for people who have actual needs. I came for people that have a, need a savior. So, I mean, this is huge. Jesus came to earth for those who are needy. So why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because he's here for all of us. He's a savior for everyone. He's not just here to save ghettos of people in certain places that have their act together. He's here for people who have actual needs and need a real savior. That's why he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. So, I mean, this passage, isn't it fun? I mean, we're just, whoo, 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 Jesus is just after it. It's so incredible. So let's go on. Third, third question. Um, look at verses 33 through 39. They said to him, so there's another question. So we've had one question after another and they're all coming from religious people. So they said to him, that is the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. So the third question, why do his disciples eat and drink and this is the fasting question. Why do his disciples eat and drink? So we just had a question about eating and drinking with sinners. So now we're asking a question about eating and drinking in the religious world. 
The religious crowd isn't satisfied that Jesus just eats and drinks with sinners in this association question. So they ask another question about eating and drinking that relates to fasting. So followers of John the Baptist and followers of the Pharisees fast and they offer up prayers and Jesus' followers eat and drink. What's up with that? And part of Jesus' answer points to who he is. Like I'm the bridegroom. I'm here at a wedding. So a wedding we had just a few weeks here in this building. We didn't say, oh, you know, there's no cake or punch tonight, no celebration because we're all fasting. What, where am I? You know, what's going on? It would just be bewildering. No, it's the celebration. We're celebrating life together, that God's brought these people together. So it would be weird if you went to a wedding and like, so what's the, what's the reception gonna be like? Oh, there's no reception. We're all fasting for the couple. What? Can I get a drink at least? You know, something. Um, what's wrong with that? And so Jesus says, yeah, there's gonna be a come a time when the bridegroom is gonna be taken away and then my followers will fast, but because I'm here. So uh, John Piper in his sermon series on a hunger for God, I, I never forget when I heard this line. He was talking about this passage and he goes, somewhere on a dusty road in Palestine, religious leaders come up and ask Jesus, why do your disciples eat and drink? And Jesus' answer is, I'm here, get it. Um, Yeah, so that's the point. Jesus is there. So that's why his disciples don't fast. It's the biggest party in the world because the son of God has taken on human flesh and he's walking around Judea. Why would you be fasting then? You have God himself right there. I mean, that's why his disciples aren't fasting. That's why they eat and drink because he's there. It's the greatest party in the world. You know, we're not gonna get to heaven someday. Like it's not saying like the fasts in heaven are gonna be epic. No, what we're told in Revelation is it's gonna be a great supper where we celebrate for eternity. You know, that's, that's what being with Jesus is. But Jesus does add that, that there is gonna come a time when my disciples will fast. And another part of his answer relates to this whole business of the new and the old. So some things just shouldn't be mixed. New wine, which is still fermenting, would burst old wineskins. And none of you ladies sewing would take a brand new garment that you just bought at the store and say, oh, it kind of matches the garment. So let me tear a piece out of there and I'm gonna patchwork it into this old garment and that's gonna be all better. No, it's foolish. Like you just tore up a brand new garment to fix an old one and it doesn't even match right. No one does that. So Jesus, like part of Jesus' answer is, there's a new reality that I'm bringing for my people. It's not like the old ways. There's a new way that my people are gonna be characterized by. So here's how Ralph Davis puts it. It's no good trying to squeeze Jesus into your old molds, thinking that he can just, uh, that Jesus can, Jesus has just brought some additional religious ideas that you can tack on to your preformed traditions. No, Jesus has brought the new age and it's disastrous to mix the tedious traditions of Judaism with the new age of the kingdom. Like it's completely different because Jesus is here, everything has changed. We're not living the same. The old has passed away, new has come. And so at the core of all this is his followers joy in him, in Jesus' presence. So today we do fast but we're still carried along in this joy by the reality that we're desperate for him above all. That's what fasting is. Our fasting isn't just in the Christian world. We don't just fast for health reasons. We're not just fasting to lose weight. 
We're not just fasting so that we can have clarified thoughts. For God's people, our fasting is marked by Jesus himself, the joy that we have from him and the desperation that we have for him in our lives. That's why we fast. So why do Jesus' disciples eat and drink? Because there's no way they can fast when he's here. There's too much joy. And now we fast out of that desperation for him. And we wanna enter more fully into that joy. So that's the, that's the third question and answer. Why do his disciples eat and drink? Because there's too much joy. Jesus is here. And there's gonna come a time where his disciples will fast and that joy is still gonna carry us. It's still gonna keep us keeping on that a fast isn't um, a burden because of the joy that we have in knowing him. So fourth and finally, we get to um, this question uh, at, found in the beginning of chapter six, verses one through 11. So let me read that and then we'll wrap this up. On a Sabbath, so that's a Saturday. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took, took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So this is the fourth question. What about keeping rules? This is the Sabbath question, or no, it's not the Sabbath, it's the Lord question, sorry. The Lord question, it is a Sabbath question, but it's the Lord question really. So they bring together a couple of episodes, a couple of questions about rule keeping. The first episode was Jesus walking through a grain field with his disciples and they harvested on the Sabbath. They plucked some grain, rubbed it in their hands and ate it. And the Pharisees immediately denounced this as law breaking. Why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus' answer includes, uh, relates to David being hungry and eating holy bread in a pinch. Included with the story was this announcement that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then the second episode, another Sabbath, Jesus taught a man enters with a withered hand. So withered hand, if you don't know, it just means that his hand was all withered. It would, he couldn't stretch it out. It was just all clenched up. And the scribes and Pharisees are watching. They're like, he's probably gonna heal this guy. Can you believe him? He's gonna make his life better right here on this Sabbath. Can you believe that? He's gonna change him right here, right now. Can you believe he's gonna do this? And Jesus knows what they're thinking. So he brings the man front and center and he asks them a question. Is it lawful to do good or to harm, to save a life or to destroy it on the Sabbath? Now they know that if they've read Leviticus, that there are all kinds of exceptions for what kind of good you could do on a Sabbath. 
So they should know that you can do good on the Sabbath, it's okay. You can save a life on the Sabbath, it's okay. The law allows even that. So Jesus is kind of exposing them. And um, this angered them, he healed the guy and they began plotting what they could do with Jesus. So he heals the man with the withered hand. He, he heals him, he saves his life, basically. He, he gives him new life. Um, and again, this question's alive and well for us today. You know, like, why aren't you keeping the rules? Like, there's rules we need to be keeping. Why aren't you keeping those? And we're missing a crucial step in our rule keeping, and that is that middle announcement at the end of verse five. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Like, Jesus is the Lord of the rules. We're, we're forgetting that crucial component. There's a good summary in, um, I've, I say this all the time, my favorite study Bible, the Gospel Transformation Study Bible. And here's a good summary. In both the Old and the New Covenants, God gives instructions for how his people are to live in faithful response to him. Observing the Sabbath rest is one such example from the law. Yet in both the Old and the New Covenants, human nature is the same as is our tendency to take God's instruction and make it external rather than internal, religious rather than faithful, law rather than grace. These two Sabbath conflict stories show this human tendency and speak directly against a legalistic, gospel-less way of living. Jesus points us toward God and himself. On the one hand, these stories show us that as the true representation of God, Jesus must be the focus of our religious devotion. At the same time, Jesus shows us that living the gospel entails compassion towards those who are in need because this is also God's heart. So in both ways, the gospel is shown to be a matter of the heart, a heart of faith toward God and a heart of compassion toward others. This is the true gospel life, living not merely according to rules, but faithful obedience to God's gracious purposes revealed in the law. So that's the end of the quote. So this passage that we just read about the Sabbath isn't in the Bible so that we would get our acts together and get better laws for Sundays or so that we could take a day off every week and not forget that we're God. It's here so that we can remember that our hearts should go to Jesus rather than just religious practice. Like, what does it profit a man if you do everything that the Bible says and you're not closer to Jesus? If you perfectly obey everything that the Bible says, but there's no devotion to Jesus, what is it accomplishing? Like, or another way, using the second half, if you keep every Sabbath command but don't have love, are you not just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal? So the issue of rule keeping is, is it driving us to Jesus? Is it driving us into his heart? It's about him, not just religious practice. So if you are keeping rules just for the sake of keeping rules, then welcome to dead religion. You better keep working hard to earn favor by doing what you think is right. And keep burning your wheels because it's a futile effort. But if your eyes are on Jesus, 
and your eyes are full of faith in him and how you can love your neighbor, then you're well on your way to keeping not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of it. This is how Jesus reorients rule keeping. He's saying this isn't about the command, this is about me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. If, I, if I'm walking through a grain field and tell my disciples to rub grain in their hands and eat it, I'm not breaking the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of it. I'm the point of it. And so if you're going through life and just keeping religious rules and he's not the point of it, what are you doing? That's the point that Jesus is asking. And then the second Sabbath story is, if you're doing all this and it's not helping others, you're not fulfilling the law because the whole law is fulfilled in that one command, love your neighbors yourself. It's gonna have an impact in the lives of others. So man, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to this because we love the Bible, we love what it says. Some of us take obedience really seriously and your obedience shouldn't be um, causing you to look horizontal or look at how awesome you are. Your obedience ought to be fixing your eyes on one that you're following and allowing you to be able to love others so extravagantly that you're just like, oh Jesus, you're here too, wow. Well, this is like what I need to be doing. So some of us have such precise rule-keeping things that we can't imagine we would heal someone. That, like, heal someone on the Sabbath? That, well, that would be breaking a law. Would it? <laughs> like, so this is quite the conundrum that Jesus puts us in because it bursts all of our religious bubbles. Um, and I can tell by how quiet it is. We're all stewing on it. Um, it's, it's challenging. So, in conclusion, I know I need to wrap all this up, so maybe my final words will get it. <clears throat> We've seen four questions that help us have certainty about Jesus. These four questions. Who can forgive sins? That was the forgiveness question. Why does he eat with sinners? That's the association question. Why do his disciples eat and drink? That's the fasting question. And what about keeping rules? That's the Lord question. So as we've wrapped up this morning, um, the big question on the table is, has Jesus changed your life? Has Jesus changed your life? We saw him change the life of the paralytic, forgive his sins and heal him. We saw him heal the man with the withered hand. We saw him change uh, Levi's life, even change the life of his disciples. Um, this is what happens when, when we encounter Jesus, he changes things. So have you turned from Jesus? Have you turned from anything to Jesus? So this is what repentance is. A part of what happens when you believe is you turn from something that you currently put trust in, you currently put confidence in, you currently rely on, you're trusting in this and you're turning from that to Jesus, to putting all my confidence in him. I'm relying on him. I'm putting my trust in him. He's the one that I have all my confidence in now. Not this other thing, whatever it is. It could be the way you think God is. It could be the way you think things ought to be. It could be what seems nice to you. Um, all these categories, you're turning from that to say, no, Jesus creates the categories now. Jesus is the one I'm leaning to. That's what repentance is. So like you'd trust a chair to hold you when you sit, or like if you were jumping out of an airplane and you had a parachute on and you trusted that if you pulled that handle, something's gonna open, you're trusting and relying on Jesus for your life. You're putting all your confidence in him. And so I'd love for you to believe in Jesus today. I'd love for you to put your confidence in him today. And you might still have questions. So we talked about all these questions today. I'm not meaning to, uh, I'm not meaning to say that 
you know, this sermon answers all the questions you have. You probably still have questions. So there's gonna be some leaders down front here after the service at the front of the stage. And we would love to talk to you if you have more questions. But we'd love for you to believe in Jesus and consider him. Um, we'd love to connect with you. And if you've turned from some other way to Jesus, um, this should create all kinds of confidence that you have in him. So today, I hope you've been further established in him through these questions. Um, that you see him, that he's the only one who can forgive sins. And you've leaned into him for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, I hope you're following Jesus means that you're more interested in loving people like Jesus did than what religious onlookers might think. And that's a hard one in our day and age when the religious crowd can be bullying at times. Um, do we love people the way Jesus loved them? Or are religious onlookers keeping us from stepping into what we need to do? Have you ever fasted? Uh, this might be a question that you have after this morning. Well, what does it look like for me to fast? And um, I would tell you, um, what's the Paul Tripp counsel? Like, you have the Bible, you have the Holy Spirit, go figure it out. Um, you know, uh, so that's, that's part of the answer is I would invite you to read the scriptures to understand what's going on there. But grab a Christian friend and talk through this. Grab a leader and talk through this. Let me just give you kind of uh, a quick hit on fasting because we don't do a lot of sermons on fasting. Uh, my practice usually consists of choosing a day to fast in a given week. So I'll choose a day and I usually fast from supper time with my family. So I'll eat supper with my family and then fast till supper the next day. That's a 24 hour period. So I'll skip breakfast and lunch. And during those times, I'm not just like, ooh man, this is great, I can get more done. Um, no, I'm using that time when I would normally be eating to spend more time in prayer, to more time seeking Jesus, more time leaning into the joy that I have in him. Um, using those times to situate my heart in the joy of Christ. I'm pouring out my needs to him. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about how desperate I am. And that's just because I don't wanna be like um, having my family come to dinner and me saying, well, I'm sorry I can't eat with you all tonight because I'm fasting. <laughs> you know, some, some weird category like that. I just don't wanna do that. That's not how I'm wired. Now there could be seasons where I might have to fast or do something longer and they would understand that. But I just try not to make a big spectacle of it or um, make a big deal about it. Cause I don't, you know, I'm just trying to practice this with my head down and, and seek Jesus. And so um, you could lean into something like this. Now I also recognize that in the day and age we live in, there's some of you who can't skip meals and that's okay. Um, so maybe, maybe you have a television show that you enjoy watching every day and you could just turn that off for 30 minutes and just seek the Lord and say, Lord, I'm desperate for you. More than I want this show, I want you. Um, I'm leaning into you. I'm, I'm leaning into the joy I have in you. Or maybe uh, you turn off social media on your phone for a season, or you turn off your phone for a season just to seek him uh, for a bit. Uh, there's all kinds of ways you could do this. Um, maybe give up some favorite thing you have, some hobby you have, that I'm gonna use this time to pursue Jesus instead. So again, um, if you have questions, you can grab a friend. And the other thing I would say is in light of the last point is there's no rules. <laughs> like Jesus has set you free to follow him more than anything. And so like, there's not a manual like, okay, now there are some clarifications like 
when you fast, you know, don't do this or this. And it's really in contrast to how the religious world practices it, that Jesus is saying, I just want my followers to look differently. I want them to be about me, not about the big show that this could be. Uh, but you're really free in Jesus to lean into him and to figure out what that could look like for you. And so if, if I could be of help to that or another leader could, we'd love to have those conversations with you. So speaking of rules, I think the big thing to remember is just that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Um, I, I think it's interesting that the issue chosen here is Sabbath because that's still an issue in the day and age we live in. It's hotly debated. There's, I, I think, at least four different opinions that I can think of just off the top of my head about how different Christians view practicing Sabbath and what that means. Um, there's a lot of varied opinions on this issue still in our world today. And I think Jesus is just telling us, the point is me. The, the, Jesus is the point of rule keeping. That's the point for anything you do in the Christian life. It's Jesus. So all the law is fulfilled in loving God and loving your neighbor. That's the whole summary of the law, loving God and loving neighbor. I mean, why is it couched in love? Why is it not couched, the whole law is fulfilled in doing? Why is that not the case? Because it comes out of relationship. It's about loving God. And as you love God, your heart's gonna love people. This is how Jesus is changing you. So focusing on Jesus is gonna keep your rule keeping in the proper place. It's not asking rule keeping to do more than it needs to do or less than it needs to do. So when you ask rule keeping to do more than it needs to do, you've turned into a legalist and you're putting all your confidence on how well I've kept the rules this week. And Jesus is saying, no, that's nothing. And if you say, well, rule keeping doesn't matter at all. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, not really because you forget that your eyes on Jesus and that does give you freedom, but it doesn't give you the freedom to do whatever you want. You don't just live like there's no law. You live with your eyes on him. So by having your eyes on him, rule keeping is put in its proper place. You're not asking it to do more or less than it was ever intended. So these questions for Jesus prove consequential. They help us to know him and they help us to make him known to others. So let's keep leaning into him that we can glorify and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this word. I, I know this is a long narrative and because it's questions from religious people, undoubtedly it gets into questions that we have in this room. So I hope I've been gracious enough and kind enough and, and transparent enough. And I hope your spirit's been at work uh, to lead us to the point that Christ is the point. Might we walk out of here with him on our lips and um, focused on him more than anything. Uh, we need your help for this. Um, we're so thankful that we have Christ. Um, that it's not anything within us that is decisive. It's Christ who's decisive. We're thankful for the lives that he changed, and we think, we're thankful for how he's changed many of our lives in this room. And might he be glorious um, today. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.